Hello, everyone, and welcome. You're listening to the Clarkson Ignite podcast. We are coming to you from the new spangled WTSC radio station in the Clarkson Student Center. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt. And I'm Nick. And this is a weekly podcast meant to connect individuals across Clarkson's diverse community. We are going to give you, our listeners, an interesting and unique content experience. We hope. Wow. (laughs) We hope that you can walk away from our episodes learning something new and valuable, something that will inspire. For the next few weeks, we'll be releasing episodes all recorded during Kogo Weekend, Cold Out, Gold Out. Unfortunately, I had to miss the interview to train for our nationals for skiing, so I had to leave it all to Matt. Yeah, so each alumni we interviewed had a drastically different story for how they utilized their Clarkson experience. Um, It was a great opportunity to interview them and share their story with all of you. We have um, three of them coming up in the next three weeks, uh, so I'm very excited for that. This week's episode, I talked to James Burke, class of 92. He is the current chief architect and senior manager of Digital Foundations at Lockheed Martin. Uh, he spoke at the TEDx Clarkson U event last weekend, um, and he focused on how art often leads technology. We dived a little deeper on this topic and also talked about his journey during and after Clarkson. Um, ultimately, it was a great conversation, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. I enjoyed it so much, even though it wasn't there. Well, you know, you listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. Listener mail. This week. What do we got, Nick? All right. This week we have a question from Kate Wellings, a Clarkson sophomore. She asked us, what inanimate object would you delete from this universe? I'm going to rant, so you go first. Okay. I'm going to go off also. Okay. So um, one inanimate object I would delete is I would remove episode seven of the Star Wars story from existence because of multiple reasons. They destroyed Luke Skywalker's character. They put in storyline parts that just meant nothing to anything. It had nothing to do with Star Wars at all. And then they had a bunch of characters that were meaningless and they destroyed everything. And I cried three times. Wow. I feel like you have a lot more anger about this that you're keeping in. I'm very angry. I'm very angry. (laughs) I, it's the least, oh God. All right, well, before before you really let it go, um. My inanimate object or thing is social media. And I don't care even if it's not inanimate because it still needs to be eliminated. It's everything that's wrong with people and uh, instincts and hate and not thinking things through. What I hate most is that people just like automatically just let their primal instincts take hold. Mm-hmm. Mm. A lot like, like what they did when they were making The Last Jedi, Star Wars. <laughs> they just got going and were like, this is a good idea. That's a good idea. This is a good idea. We shouldn't think about any of these things and what it's going to do to people. We're just going to do it. And it wasn't because it destroyed me. Yeah. Yep. I just don't like it. I don't like it either. I agree with you. I could say that I'm going to blame social media on the way, the reason Star Wars was the way it was. And now I'm angry. Now I'm angry at social media. I'm beefing with social media now. I'm just saying. 
but it is a necessary demon no. that we must well i mean how else are you supposed to get information to people these days they no. don't do anything else i'm not gonna you read a book like a normal person but how are you going to get information to them in a book you write it in the book the main you reason, print the book but the and main then you reason, ship the book to them the main way that we get people information about the fact that this podcast exists is through social media it Dang is a it. necessary evil unfortunately i hate when you write i know because I have a company and I have to market on social media and I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it one bit. Because mm. mm. I have to then make things far more superficial. Mm. I don't like it. I want it to be about the quality of the product rather than, oh my God, this looks so good. Well, you know, you know what? What? Maybe you shouldn't have made shirts out of trash. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so. and on that bombshell thank you it's recycled trash it is recycled. it looks trash. really nice it looks good but it's okay it's still you know we're trying to save the environment people that's all yeah terrapparel.com dot co <laughs> email us for next week <laughs> please edit that part out no okay terrapparel.co until next time All right, James, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, you gave a great talk this morning uh, at our TEDx Clerks and You, and you talked a lot about um, how many of the technological innovations that have occurred have come from art and from the creators of a lot of um, sci-fi, whether it be comics or films, uh, and I thought it was really interesting, you know, it gets talked about a little bit, but all of the credit usually goes to the engineers that actually develop the physical technology. So I thought it was, it was pretty cool that for once it was an engineer crediting uh, the creative minds for, you know, first pushing the, the technological people to, you know, look in that direction. Right, right. So that was really cool. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came across that as kind of your focal point uh, for your talk? What was, you know, what was the process that you used to, to develop your TED Talk? Um, well, first, thank you for having me. Glad to be part of the, the podcast. Um, so the, the creative process, as I was describing during the, the TED Talk itself, um, and as you and I talked briefly ahead of this, mm -hmm. um, the topic of Internet of Things is broad and wide. And it's a matter of trying to figure out, okay, what's the, what's the hook that's going to pull somebody in? And honestly, I was struggling with it. I, I, being a technologist, uh, most of my career uh, focusing on the technology, uh, it's, I could go at length for, well, what is this device like? Uh, you know, how do you develop this? How do you develop it better? Um, what's the data running through it? What's the security or, or cybersecurity implications on it? And it didn't seem like it would be a satisfying talk for a bunch of people on a Saturday morning that are here for Kogo <laughs> um, to go through and say, oh, geez, uh, not enough beer in the event tent to, to go through <laughs> this. Um, and I was talking with a dear friend of mine, as I credited her in the, uh, in the TED speak, and she is a consummate uh, prop, prop master. She works for themed entertainment mm -hmm. uh, for some of the uh, parks that you would go and visit in the Florida area. And she took me on a walk through some of those parks and said, this is what I built. This is, these are the things that, that I make. And as she was showing me this stuff, the, the, the images that evoked in my head brought me immediately back to the thing I do the most, which is I collect comic books, I draw on the side, I do my own art. Mm. 
but it reminded me of the cartoons that I would watch. And some of them are wide and varied, whether it's, you know, Battletech uh, and, uh, or uh, Thundercats or Tom and Jerry or you name it. And I have a 16-year-old daughter going on 21 most days, you know, and she's still watching, uh, I want to say Steven Universe is the uh, latest one that she's watching, or Rick and Morty, uh, which I love as well. <laughs> so, you know, you, you go through and you watch these, and uh, if you look at the cartoons, the writers are brilliant. Uh, if you watch Simpsons, you'll see that uh, they've already predicted the uh, title of the newest Star, Star Wars movie a couple of years ago, and I won't spoil it for anybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, you have the, the creatives, and they're thinking in ways that, um, when I was a student here at Clarkson, you're one of the, one of the high watermarks for, for being a Clarkson student is figuring out how to solve a problem, not being given a lot of direction. Yeah. And I love that. Um, but the problem is you start to learn your own process, how to decompose that, that problem. Um, and it's not necessarily, it's creative, but it's not creative as in art. Mm -hmm. It's not creative as in, um, I don't want to say this word on this campus, but liberal arts <laughs> it's not uh, it, it doesn't go down that path um and i say that kiddingly because when when i was here i know that uh, engineering is is our as an alumni that's our strong point but you need the creative side you need the art side to actually extend yourself um and in talking with my friend christine she um evoked images in my head that i hadn't thought about in years and it was the examples i use today mm. um the uh, House of Tomorrow, Farm of Tomorrow, Car of Tomorrow, and they're stupid videos. Let me, <laughs> if you ever watch them, I mean, Google them, go out there and watch them. It's like three or four minutes. They're stupid. The stuff that the writers came up with is completely laughable. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of funny that some of them, one or two of them, they'll throw out a, a, a bunch of them. Not all of them have to be right. Yeah. Um, and part of that that discussion is not just the art, but it's also learning a little bit of improvisation. Um the yes and. When you brainstorm, there's never a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you don't know where that's gonna lead to. Uh, it's to shut that down prematurely is bad. And I'll tell you, as a, as a student, I shut down a lot of things when we're trying to solve problems. You're learning a different um, method to solve things that a creative person, collaborator, someone like Christine that I was working with uh, said, oh no, try this, you mm. know, pivot this way. How about this? And I said, perfect. This is this is exactly what I needed to, to have my aha moment to say, you know what, um, for the internet of things, this is how I think I need to slice this. And it's more down the path of Saturday morning cartoons. What does that evoke here? Um, and try to invite people to that conversation. Yeah, we're trying, you know, I think that what you said about the yes and and, and not denying ideas before they really get the chance to develop is huge. It's something that we are recently at Clarkson trying to get students to to move uh, towards. It's really the the tough part that we face is how do we do that and also maintain grades, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, employers what they're looking for is that GPA. Um, at you know, there's other things, but that's that's yeah. what you you know yeah. that that's what employers are looking for, and it's tough to be like, okay, well, we can explore these things and. And fail a few times when, at the end of the day, you know, you only have a couple of weeks, or if you're lucky, a whole semester to to come up with your end project, and that doesn't leave a lot of time, especially with you know four or five other classes going on, yep. to 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 seek out those other means. So that culture shift is is taking some time, but it's something we're moving in. So that was really cool. 
So tell me a little bit about how you ended up at Clarkson in the first place. Um, what was it? Ninety. Oh, it's too long ago. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. No. So um, after after high school, I ended up uh, staying local. I'm from the Binghamton area. Okay. Uh, I'll use that as the general thing because the towns <laughs> around there, not too many people know. Um, so I, I graduated high school. I stayed local at a community college, and I transferred up to Clarkson. Um, Clarkson was, in fact, the only school that I chose, and it was for two reasons. Um, one, they had a transfer agreement in place with our community college. 100% plus for, for the classes that we were taking, which was fantastic. Second reason, back in the day, I transferred up in 1990, graduated in 92. Um, Clarkson had and still, I think, has a really high placement rate, but back then it was 100% placement rate. So you're coming out, graduating, going to you know GE Aerospace or GE, um, which is, I, I ended up going to GE Aerospace, um, IBM, or you name any of the large companies that people were sourcing Clarkson for. Mm -hmm. um, and if you were in New York or in the uh, Northeast area, yeah. um, you were... You were vying between Clarkson RPI or SUNY Buffalo back in the day. Um, you're nodding your head, so I'm guessing that's still the same. Thing. At least, yeah, RPI and Clarkson are yeah, the two big yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's fantastic. I still work with a bunch of uh, colleagues at Lockheed that are Clarkson grads, um, as well as uh, RPI guys, which I you know needle of course saying really. <laughs> Yeah, come on, get a real hockey team. Yeah, seriously. Um, so, <laughs> um, that rivalry will never die. No, no. Um, but I came here for those two reasons, and the Career Placement Center here um, was fantastic mm. for taking you through the paces of um, essentially another course that you added onto your uh, your curriculum. It wasn't an official course; you didn't get graded for it. But oh my God, the amount of work that you did on it to do. Um, uh, mock interviews and videotaping of the interviews and then critique afterwards um, down to the point where you're walking in and, you know, oh, let's do the critique. Oh, Jim, you unbuttoned your <laughs> your jacket the wrong way. Let's show you. Let's show you this way, and I'm looking at the person going, "Really? That's that's a that's an important thing. that it is important." <laughs> and I, I'm looking at, looking at it, going, "Oh my God, the level of detail that you're concerned with, not only with the ums and ahs, but also with how you present and appear, um, was fantastic. It was a fantastic trainer, and I could see why the Clarkson grads were getting 100% placement rate mm -hmm. at the time. So, um, come to find out, you know, when we graduated in '92, um, I was sharing earlier that. Last year, I came up for Kogo. First time I've been on campus in 25 years. Um, we were the first class to graduate out of Chile. So, mm. yeah, they, that summer we graduated. What did they do it before then? Was um, it Walker? It was Walker, yeah. And they did it. We were the first ones. We, I didn't even get to see a game played there because they opened it in the spring mm. after the hockey season. And we went to go to the uh, um, graduation there. And... You know, I'm looking around going, wow, this is this is fantastic. Um, but, you know, ever since when I, when I came back, I was like, um, you know, what's the um, oh, where did the thought escape me to right now? Um, when when we went through graduation, the president got up there and said, you know, um, every class has had a 100 percent placement rate except this class. <laughs> and I'm looking at, I, first I'm going, crap, uh, it's 92% or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then the second thing is, yeah, keep your mouth shut. You have a job in hand. You're going <laughs> to work for, you know, GE in Syracuse. Yeah. So it was, uh, it, um, it was interesting. Um, but yeah, that's why I came up here. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's awesome. And so what was what was your experience while you were here? What did you kind of were you involved on campus? Oh, focused? yeah. Yeah. OK. So, uh, what'd so, you do? so being a transfer student, um, only two years up here. So I got involved with um, uh, let's see, I was part of the rugby team. While I was up here, played rugby back home and, and afterwards. So the rugby team was fantastic. Did not go and join any uh, fraternities outside of that. Um, but I was involved with the Solar Racer team, which I don't know if they're still around or not. Mm. Mini Baja, the, okay. the snowmobile yep. uh, team. And I had some roommates that were uh, civil, civil engineers. So they were getting involved with the uh, concrete, concrete canoe. Concrete canoe, yep. Yeah. So um, teachers I had back then, I, I saw... Um, uh, Professor Conker last year. I was hoping to touch base with him this year again, uh, and Professor McGrath. Mm. Uh, two guys that were very, uh, in, not only influential, but they were very um, uh, core and necessary to the program because they helped transition students like myself to be better thinkers. Um, they were, I, I worked for uh, McGrath as a uh, research assistant in the high voltage lab down in. I'm trying to think whether it was Peyton or Clarkson Hall. I'm pretty sure it was Peyton. Peyton, it, yeah. It, it, was, it had like the two, three-story yep. uh, open area. And then uh, uh, did a lot of the uh, classes down there. Mm. So it was really a shock to the system last year when I come back and I and see... there's no classes down there. There's <laughs> no downtown campus to speak of. They're all up on the Hill Campus, which is where we lived. And oh my God, now you can go and sneak through every building. Every building. That was the biggest selling point for me getting here. Because, well, from, well, not, so that's a lie. It wasn't the biggest selling point. It was like the biggest, like, ooh, cool little tidbit thing. Because I'm from Connecticut. So coming all the way up north here, I was like, oh my God, it's going to be so cold all the time. And I'm a skier. So I don't know why that scared me. But I I felt like I was basically in Siberia when I came up here. Yeah. um, Because I think I, I visited in January. So. That that piece was was pretty cool to me, and it's so weird to think that you know even twenty years ago, thirty years ago, um, students were walking down oh. all the way downtown for classes from up here. Oh, yeah, so I, I brought my daughter with me on this trip, and again, she's you know sixteen, going on 20, 21 most days, <laughs> and she's looking at the campus, and um, she wants to go into a, a STEM background. So mm-hmm. I said, awesome, you know, Clarkson, we can support that, and you know, what do you want to what do you want to look at? Um, so as I'm driving her out to where we're staying, we're staying out, uh, out towards the Hampton, uh, okay. the Hampton Inn. Yep. I'm taking her through downtown and, you know, showing her where all the haunts were that I went to. <laughs> um, some good, some bad, some closed. Yeah. And, uh, I showed her where the quad was and she's like, you have, you walk this? Yeah. Like, yeah. Every day. Yeah. No, so, I drive to the bagelry every day okay. when I go down there. We don't walk. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems so far, even though I know it's probably a 10 minute walk. Oh. It's it's a walk you get used to, yeah. right? even in you know middle of February, <laughs> and it's wind blowing across the Racket River. Um, and at times, I did take my uh, mountain bike across the river when it would freeze over. Uh, probably a stupid thing to do, hey. so don't try this at home. You know, uh, there are times during the year where you can do this, and it, <laughs> when you can, it's fun. Uh, but yeah, I used to walk that back and forth all the time. Um, I was telling somebody yesterday, hey, here's the campus bookstore. I don't, this is where we used to pick up the books and have to haul them all the way back up mm-hmm. campus. Um, and it sucked. It yeah. really sucked. And everyone drives that now. Yeah. I don't think any, I mean, there might be a few that walk, but it vastly, it's like, who's going to the bookstore today? Yeah. We'll drive down together type of thing. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty funny. That's, that's one of the main things that I think about is, you know, 
the big transition to recently to everything being on the hill. It's yeah. made things a lot more convenient. Well, hearing, you know, hey, they moved Snell Hall from yeah. downtown to up, up, up campus. I'm like, how did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> how do you move that giant building? Yeah. Well, the biggest thing to me, it's funny because, you know, students are always complaining, oh, they never cancel class. And I'm like, you, it's a five minute walk to the, not, it's usually a three minute walk to the nearest building. And then from there, you can get anywhere else. Yeah. And people, I just, it makes me think about, you know, I, 20, 30 years ago, you guys were doing that. I don't think three times longer ever, i don't think there was ever a time where weather caused the campus to shut yeah. down i think saint patrick's day may <laughs> cause the campus to shut down for different reasons but you know there's that yeah um yeah there's it, never any of that yeah. so that's what i whenever i'm like oh this walk sucks i think about okay you know people have done worse. it could be way worse <laughs> um so after your two years at clarkson you mentioned you went to ge how did was that kind of did you find that to be a good stepping stone for the rest of your career or was it something a little bit different than what you ended up and following through with so afterwards? i'm a second i'm a second generation ge aerospace guy my okay. dad my dad was uh, uh an engineer for 41 years and i was doing internships you know uh, in in the summer to down in the area uh, so graduating into that awesome i uh, was working down in the syracuse area and working on uh, uh, submarines and radars and great work. And I had a head of steam about me. I mm. wanted to be doing more. I went to Clarkson and I was doing hardware stuff. I was prototyping things here. You, know, you yeah. go into the labs and you're, you're playing with stuff. Yeah. And when I got out, I wasn't playing with things. Yeah. In fact, I was doing the one thing I didn't want to do and sit at a desk. Well, sit at a desk <laughs> and, um, do software. Yeah. And at the time I realized this is like early nineties. So software was a thing that you can do. And I'm looking at it going, Oh dear God, no. Yeah. Um, and I started my job search and that led me to uh, go out to the Chicagoland area working for Motorola, um, working out there doing hardware because I thought that was my want and desire in life. Mm -hmm. This is what I learned up here. Yeah. So obviously that's what you want I to need do. to go. So I was out there for about four years and working, uh, with that company, which I, I know Motorola is not in the same state that it was. Well, back then it was a huge, it was a huge thing. So. Right. And you learn a lot. Um, when I walked out there, um, I was leaving G aerospace that was, um, they're getting ready to do some layoffs and I'm walking into a company like Motorola where yeah. they were making money hand over fist mm -hmm. and turning away $3 billion jobs, literally, um, for a $5 billion job. That's crazy. And it was all in handsets. Yeah. And I'm looking at it going, what, I, yeah, what's a wait, handset? I was, what's a handset? <laughs> I was just working on submarines. Yeah. Um, and it was fantastic. I went and I, I joined them and traveled the world, uh, deploying, wireless communication products, uh, the infrastructure products that go into the back offices of like AT&T and Sprint uh, companies that are out there now yeah. um, in what they call their network operations centers um, so that they can make, they can enable your your calls to be connected. So I ended up um, getting a crash course in telephony and <laughs> uh, you know wireless communications and it was fantastic. Um, got to go to different countries and interact different cultures, uh, and deploy product there too. So it was, um, it, it, it was a unique time. And at the same time, did, did one of my masters out there at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And it was in wireless communications. When I graduated, I did what every capitalist does. They go out and get a different job. Mm. So I applied and, you know, I, I had an opportunity to go to Qualcomm out in uh, San Diego mm -hmm. or come back east to go to Lockheed. 
in the Philadelphia area. Um, you know, I, I'm not here to say which choice was better. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure people will say, hey, you should have taken Qualcomm and yeah. done this. Right, you could have. I chose to go back east for family reasons. And um, it was fine. It, it was a fant- it's a fantastic career, and it's something that I love because I, I not only like to work on the solution, but I like to work on the mission. Mm-hmm. And the mission that, you know, that you can... Some people can take pot shots at it saying, well, you know, you're, you're supporting the warfighter. Yes, you're trying to keep people safe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things in this conversation that we've never talked about and won't uh, about, well, what's, what do you do on the end to help the warfighter? Can't talk about that. Yeah. But you're helping some bring somebody or bring a group of people home so that they can be with their families. You're enabling using technology and solutions, um, as I said today, creating elegant solutions to exquisite problems mm-hmm. um, that are trying to save save lives. Um, that to me, I can, I can resonate with, and it's a mission I've, I've been doing for close to 25 years. So, so you were at Lockheed Martin for a while. You worked under the chief technology officer, and then you were the chief technology officer for North America. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. no, no. Okay. Please, so I read oh, that God. wrong. No, no, no. no okay. No. Way too big. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. Now you got it. All right. You know, I'll... yes, I am the chief technology. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so there Lockheed Martin's chief technology officer, um, at the corporate layer it yeah. was at the time Ray Johnson. And I was one of the, I was buried in one of the four businesses of Lockheed. Um, um, and uh, for our division, I was working in the chief technology op- office there and running um, R&D projects for them. Um, along those lines, you know, you, you have a lot of interaction, not only up the chain with other chief technology officers and chief technologists, but across the business uh, with your peers and whatnot. Uh, so, yeah, it's... It, it, you start to have other collaborations that go on. And one of the things I love to do was we were from a very small business that dealt with systems integration, uh, pulling all these disparate pieces together. And we had a very small budget, but I made the most of it by reaching out horizontally mm. to all of our businesses and asking one business and another business to help us solve a different problem that they weren't on. Mm-hmm. But if they tilted their work five degrees, it would help us and maximize our investments. So yeah, that's that's what we were doing, uh, and did that for a number of years quite well. So, and then you went after that. You went and did a few other worked at a few other companies. Yeah. So there's it depends on uh, what level of hardship you want to get into. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll tell your your listeners now. Um, don't fight a big corporation when they when they want to move you. Mm. Uh, Lockheed uh, uh, went back in the day. 2013, they decided to move my job down to the Virginia area. I chose not to go, and I paid the price. Mm. <laughs> um, I was without a job for a little while, so I was um, my own independent contractor, you'll say, for quite some time, and that's a scary proposition. Yeah, uh, Floated around back and forth and eventually ended up getting another job with a company, uh, a defense company in uh, the Virginia area, and I was down there for the last you know, four years or so. Um, before I came back into the Lockheed fold. There are some other challenges that uh, um, they had at Lockheed that they said, hey, we'd like to have you back on the team. Would you consider it? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah, please. You know, it, because they have a very wide aperture on uh, what the problem space is. And I can appreciate that being a, well, I'm a doubly in my background. I tend to think of things in terms of systems engineering. Mm-hmm. And if you're a system architect, system engineer, um, you want to look at the holistic 
problem and try to figure out how to push and pull on things. So is that is that basically what your role is now is yeah. looking at, you know, wider systems? It what excites you the most about something like that? Um, the fact that nobody else has done it that way before. Uh, up till now, you know, coming up through my career, when, when you start looking at technologies in the 90s um, or technologies as you trip into the new millennium, they're mainly uh, monolithic systems. They're single point solutions. Now it's 2019. Everything's got to work across each other. You talk about the Internet of Things, it's much more complex than that. You're talking about systems that were never meant to work together before and have to now. And if you don't do it, well, somebody will hack away to find out to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, one silly and stupid example. Um, so last place that I, last agency I was working at was um, uh, National Geospatial Agency, Intelligence Agency down in uh, Springfield, Virginia. Uh, fantastic group. They deal with geospatial um, information, geoint as they call it. Um, one of the people that was an analyst down there actually um, is a game, uh, he, he runs a game company, Niantic. And he created a game that was mildly popular in its first incarnation and it's taking geospatial information and overlaying it into real space and his second incarnation pretty much has taken things off by storm it's pokemon go oh, okay okay and his first incarnation when i was hearing uh, kevin talk earlier today about hey i've got 11 failures and i know these things don't work mm -hmm. yeah um the gentleman that was running niantic he created a game and it's not that it didn't work it it worked to a point, and he found certain things that he loved and then applied it to Pokemon Go, and it went off like wildfire. The reason why I bring this up, the point of it is um, he found a different way to hack the model. He found, you know, this is the gameplay that he wanted. Um, this is the, um, the, the piece that he wanted to do with, with GeoInt technology or GeoInt information, and he overlaid that with something that is super popular mm. with most of the kids. You know, you want to be a Pokemon trainer, <laughs> um, and that's a compelling reason yeah. to pull in somebody into that game space. Um, so, yeah, it's it, doing things that have never been done before, and it's not just him with Niantic. It's a whole bunch of engineers that I work with in different spaces that are willing to hack the model towards their own use and hearing how they do it and come up with these fantastic combinations of things. It's incredible. That's why I love being a technologist. So what is geospatial? Uh, is it just like data think, in think, three dimensions? or Yeah, think of uh, Google Google Earth. Okay. It's Google Earth data. Basically, um, okay. So he, he worked as an employee down at uh, that agency, left, decided to go do gameplay. Um, fantastic story behind it that you can go look up. I yeah, mean, it's not cool. like I, there's anything hidden, but mm. it's um, just a different way that you apply stuff, um, different way that you hack the model. And I guarantee, just like I said at the TED Talk today, everybody there, if you start thinking about, well, what's the next stage for the Internet of Things? Somebody's going to have a need, mm -hmm. a necessity that they have to apply this to, and they're going to go out there and, you know, find their own self-truth, their own way to hack this model and build it and be a billionaire or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, God love them, go for it. <laughs> so something I wanted to talk to you about, uh, in regards to Internet of Things, I know you work on the industrial side a lot, and that's probably where the most value is um, to the economy, I would say. There's a lot of push with uh, consumer products like refrigerators and stuff like that that I would hear related. 
What do you think about those products? Like when I look at a, a smart refrigerator, I guess I just I, I have to ask why. I mean, do you have any I, any insights as to why that would be attractive other than just to sell more refrigerators? Well, okay, so I'm for my days back in Motorola, I'm probably the worst um, subset of engineers to talk to about product stuff. Um, <laughs> when I was at Motorola, they, they created this very large um, screen pager. And the pager was, we, we had an agreement with ESPN, and they were trying to get live data to the pagers. And I looked at that and said, who cares? What is it? This is back, you know, before there, you know, texting on every yeah, phone yeah. and people, you know, stuck, you know, walking into walls looking at their uh, their phones. I'm looking at this going, why is this such a big deal? So it's, it's probably not a good question to ask <laughs> me about smart refrigerators, only because there's probably some some use out there that I'm not getting. But yeah, I tend to agree with you, going, hmm, yeah, that seems like the House of Tomorrow yeah. cartoon from before. Well, and why do I want to see what's on the inside? I I know that there's not a man that turns off the switch when I close the door. So what's the purpose and i haven't found that part yet yeah it's my uh more my generation but there was a movie on disney channel probably 12 years ago that was about the smart house that basically like took over and trapped um a couple of kids in it and like completely yeah. terrorized them. and that's all i can think about with the smart refrigerators but as far as the iot side on um for the industrial space can you talk about any of the things that you do in that area and what um what your hopes are for IoT in the in for industrial purposes? Um, so there's a lot of there is a lot of work that goes on inside of uh, our business with IoT. Um, there's a lot of data to harvest from the sensors that are on the line to help our business become more efficient, more uh, look into the critical path uh, in our supply chains. You know, where are things coming? Where are they going to? How fast can we deliver product? I mean, it's it, it's not just our industry. You can look mm -hmm. at you know automotive. You can look at uh, um, even uh, theme park entertainment. They they have the same. Everybody has the same problem when you look at it. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of how you twist it a little bit. Um, the problems that, that we have are no different than automotive. You know, you want to put a sensor on a line and harvest data from it and keep that data secure in your space so that you're not uh, uh, getting hacked in by others or, you know, people aren't leaving things, uh, you know, in your space to uh, corrupt your, your, your network or your uh, enterprise. Um, Outside of that, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm going to give you a satisfying answer for this. It's uh, it, it's an evolving field. Yeah. It's something that uh, um, it, it's not a one size fits all answer. We're working. Um, I know we personally are working with a number of vendors to try and solve this. So it's not just you know one thing that plug this in and it's done. Mm -hmm. um, not sure I answered your question. Not sure no, I mean it. it's 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 tough because IoT is so it's just about it's as so broad, broad of a of a topic that. It makes it difficult to, um, you know, come up with the the biggest thing for me that always kind of not blows my mind, but it's it's hard to get your mind wrapped around is the the data collection piece of the IoT. It just seems like such a expanding um, problem because you know you're just always collecting data and there's always more data to collect. How do you look at managing that data and do it in a way that doesn't just because I you know when I did a an internship it just felt like I spent all of my time just trying to figure out what the data meant and then there was no time to do anything with it after that so my fear and I've shared this with a number of colleagues so it's it's not like I'm I'm hiding anything um and it's not like it's anything specific to my my industry or my uh, company I work for um 
it's not so much harvesting the data. It's what you want to do with the data afterwards. Yeah. Um, it, the questions, I don't think, are mature yet to answer. You know, it, it, the easy part is putting sensors on a line. We've done that not we, the collective we, the large we, have yes. done that for decades. You know, you look at the automotive industry, they have sensors on the line and they're they're reacting to things as things break. You know, um, you're, you're building a car or you're building a jet, you're building whatever, and as something breaks, the line stops. Um, you, the sensors are now more sophisticated. The internet of things is more sophisticated. You look at something like a Nest uh, thermometer at your house that you can then access via your iPhone or whatever your favorite smartphone is. Um, and you can adjust your air conditioning and your heat at your home while you're in the comfort of your you know, dorm room or your house, wherever, um, or you're on the beach because you want to go and freeze somebody out at home. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it, you know, when you look at that, it's well, what data are you really collecting and what are you going to do with it? Um, if you're going to put you know, 12,000 12, or 120,000 sensors on uh, align. What do you want to harvest that data? What's a question that you're that you want to answer? Um, and some of that has to be thought out. The use case for that has to be more well thought out. I, I don't think it's more of a uh, IoT issue. It's just a common. What's the problem that you're pro looking at? What problem are you trying to solve? Yeah. So because that's a, that's definitely the challenge. You know, putting sensors on things is the easy part. We're currently uh, my senior design. Uh, class is looking at rebuilding the greenhouse that's over by Cheel. Yeah. And, you know, one of the problems was the sensor system that they have in the original one was A, all hardwired, and B, all the technology is now outdated. And so when we're looking at new sensors, you know, the first meeting that we had about, you know, what do we want to track, everyone was throwing out everything from uh, temperature, humidity, which are the important ones, to, um, you know, the level of sunlight. And right. we, there was probably 30 different things that we could sense. And you know, finally, uh, someone just set out, like, what, do we need all of, like, what's the point of that other than just to look at it? Yeah. And while looking at it is cool and could be used for research, you know, that's that's a lot of data to be collecting and having to hold somewhere yeah. to do something with. Well, I, I would reference anybody that's listening to this to check out two TED Talks, not okay. by me, <laughs> uh, um, two of them, one's by um, uh, Clay Christensen, uh, who's, you know, he, he talks about the milkshake. And what's the job of the milkshake? And I know some people in my previous assignment, they're going to laugh when I bring this up because they're the ones that brought this up. But it's really, what is the job of the milkshake? What, what are you trying to get done? Go watch it, and that should answer part of the, the, the question here. And the second one is um, one by uh, Simon Sinek. Uh, he, He's my favorite guy. Yeah. So I, he, I he love Simon. The what, yep. the how, yep. and the why. Uh -huh. And as an engineer, you know, you, engineers will dive into the how like lightning yeah They're, they'll they'll skip right over the what yeah um what is really the business question how the engineers love and, and the why is the marketing the why yeah the why is, oh that's soft no, that's <laughs> no but the why is important because to your point you know if you're going to arm something with um all these sensors why are you doing it in the first yeah. place what's the problem why yeah. why is this being done what's the problem that you're trying to solve and then you know, you know unleash some one or two clerks and engineers on it and they'll <laughs> solve the problem so Perfect. <laughs> uh, I think Simon Sinek is a great way to end. He's one of my favorite guys. Um, I actually was had the privilege of seeing him talk at uh, Synergy Global Forum in the fall of 2018. Yes. No. That was last fall. Fall of 2017. Um, and he's, he was amazing. He talked about yeah. the Golden Circle. I've read all of his books. So um, definitely someone for people who are listening to go check out for sure. Uh, well, James, thank you very much. This was an thank awesome, awesome interview. Thank you for having me. I thoroughly appreciate this. Thank you. Yep.
All right, everyone, that is all we have this week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Clarkson Ignite podcast. As always, I'm Matt. And I am Nick. Listen to you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>